Our Ruth Sherlock gets a rare look into Syria, a country that's been closed off by war. Just past dozens of mostly women and children on the side of the road in a field with just small bags of possessions. For Saturday, February 11th, it's All Things Considered. I'm Michelle Martin. Also this hour, the Secretary of State's top deputy weighs in on the Chinese balloon saga. There is no question that they meant to spy on the United States. So is there still room for diplomacy? Plus, this Valentine's Day, roses are red and very expensive. Some growers have decided to stop producing, and that influences, of course, the number and also the quality of the roses. That's all coming up, but first, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Rescue workers and volunteers in Turkey are still searching for survivors of Monday's earthquakes, even as officials in Syria say the rescue phase of search operations there has come to an end. NPR's Jason Bobian says the death toll in both countries now exceeds 28,000. Officials in Syria are giving up hope of finding any more people alive from the devastating quakes. Meanwhile, in Turkey, local residents and rescue crews continue to try to reach people they believe are trapped in piles of debris. Working in the darkness Friday night in the city of Adiaman, Gune Gunesh was helping dig into the basement of his sister's collapsed apartment building. Nobody want to lose the, you know, his hope, because if you lose your hope, it's everything. Hours later, crews reached a woman and her child alive under the rubble of a neighboring building. Turkey's vice president says 67 survivors were extracted nationwide on Friday as thousands of rescue teams continued their work. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Adiaman, Turkey. Russia is defending Friday's wave of rocket attacks against Ukraine, saying its missiles only struck military-related targets. NPR's Charles Maines has more. Defense Ministry spokesman Igor Konoshenkov said Russian missiles and drones successfully destroyed energy and transport systems critically important to what he called Ukraine's military-industrial complex. As a result of the airstrikes, Konoshenkov said power had been severed at Ukrainian military facilities and railway shipments of Western arms have been blocked from reaching the front lines. Kiev and its Western allies have called Russia's repeated targeting of civilian infrastructure in the depths of winter war crimes that have killed scores. In the latest Barrage Friday, Russia unleashed more than 100 missiles and drones in what Ukraine's military described as a massive attack that caused power outages in several regions across the country. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The family of Tyree Nichols is asking the United Nations to condemn his killing. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports five now former Memphis police officers are charged with murder. Lawyers representing Tyree Nichols' family say they filed an urgent appeal with the U.N. seeking international condemnation of his killing. Nichols, a 29-year-old father and FedEx worker, died January 10th three days after Memphis police attacked him during a traffic stop. The killing sparked outrage and protests and once again raised questions about police tactics. The family's appeal also asks the U.N. to demand transparency from the Memphis Police Department. Meanwhile, the district attorney in Shelby County, Tennessee, is reviewing all cases, past and present, handled by the five former policemen, all of whom are also black, charged in Nichols' beating death. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in Boston. Most Massachusetts residents will not face federal taxes on the state tax refunds they received last year. The IRS is clearing up the confusion created when Massachusetts gave residents a one-time payout because of a revenue surplus. Belmont CPA Glenn Logan says the majority of those who got money back from the state do not have to report that as income to the feds. If you took the standard deduction, don't worry about it. If you itemized and didn't get a tax benefit for the deduction, don't worry about it. Earlier this week, the IRS asked people to hold off on filing federal tax returns until they straightened out the issue. The head of the state Democratic Party announced today he will step down. Chair Gus Bickford held the position while Republican Charlie Baker was leading the state. But he says local Democrats are in a good place now, led by Mara Healy, the first woman and openly gay person to be elected Massachusetts governor. With all of the constitutional offices being Democrat, with winning back the Bristol County Sheriff's race, the Barnes County Sheriff's race, Cape and Island DA's race. We have just uh, picked up uh, some great seats. Bickford is endorsing former Lieutenant Governor nominee Steve Kerrigan as his successor. The National Archives took custody of documents belonging to President Biden that were shipped to a Boston law office. The Associated Press reports the president's personal attorney took the papers from a Washington think tank where Biden had an office. The papers contained mostly personal details about Biden's family. A group of Massachusetts lobstermen is suing over the emergency closure of fishing grounds that the government says is needed to protect endangered North Atlantic right whales. 200 square miles of Massachusetts Bay is closed to lobster fishing until the end of April. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said the closure that started this month will protect the whales from being entangled in fishing line. The lobstermen claim the closure is illegal and is hurting them financially. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. We're going to begin tonight's program in Syria, where survivors are desperate for help after the earthquake that killed thousands of their loved ones and left even more without homes and in the cold. The death toll is actually higher in Turkey. Altogether, more than 28,000 have died in the two countries. But while aid is flowing into Turkey, in Syria, it's another story. There's a civil war there, and the government still opposes aid going directly to large areas controlled by rebels. NPR's Ruth Sherlock got rare permission from Turkey to cross the border into rebel-held northern Syria and has this report. Driving through the border now. No, no checks at all, just straight through this border that is usually completely impenetrable for journalists now. This part of Syria is so stunningly beautiful. There's these lush green fields and olive groves, and all of this beautiful scenery, though, is interspersed with refugee camps and half-destroyed buildings, a consequence of more than a decade of civil war here. Now, as well as people who are living in tents because they fled the war. We're starting to see families who 
have fled from the earthquake zone. We just passed dozens of mostly women and children on the side of the road in a field with just small bags of possessions. We're driving through Jindos now. So much destruction. Residents ask us to come and see the destruction. They take us down a street that's partially blocked by building debris. This is all of this house. Okay. Three persons of three people of his family were killed. Zakaria Tabah speaks with the flat voice of a man who's still in shock as he tells me his father, his wife, and his two year old son, Abdul Hadi, are dead. Through an interpreter, he talks about the final hours with his son before the earthquake hit. The last night, I put him in my arms and slept with him. Uh, in the morning, I found him on his bed dead. So he put him to bed and he put him to sleep? like. Yeah, he, he put him in, the, in his bed and in the morning he found him dead. I'm so sorry. Zakaria's wife was killed next to him from the debris that fell on their bed. Few came to support him and his only surviving child, five-year-old Abdul Wahab, when they buried their family. People are so busy with their own cases, so nobody is, uh, is uh, have the time to help the others. Yeah. All of them are injured, all of them have deaths. In Turkey, enough equipment, they don't have enough rescue workers to cope with all of the damage. This place feels forgotten, though we haven't seen any rescue workers. It's just a lot of very lost-looking people sitting on piles of rubble and personal possessions. From the first day, where is, where is the world? Why we are alone? Why we are alone? All people are alone. Mohammed Hafar, the mayor of Jinderis, tells us he has 3,900 families without any shelter in the freezing weather. If you come in the evening, you will see people are gathering in the streets and making fires in the streets. Five days from the catastrophe and there is no tents, no help, no aid. The Syrian regime considers bringing aid across the border from Turkey to these rebel-held areas a violation of its sovereignty. The United Nations is able to send aid through one border crossing from Turkey, but even that comes up for a regular vote at the UN Security Council. After the earthquake, the roads to this one sanctioned border crossing were damaged, and so even though there were other routes from Turkey into Syria where aid could have come, none did. <laughs> Mohammed Juma can't bear to leave the destroyed home where his wife and only two children, a toddler and a baby, were killed. Children's toys poke out from the debris. He's sleeping about the ruins of his home. Now you're sleeping on the ruins. Now he is sleeping on the ruins. He explains how during the earthquake they became trapped in the rubble. He and other neighbors tried to free them. Juma believes if they'd had the right machinery, his family might still be alive. Uh, if there is a salvation teams, they will be safe and alive. Other residents start to tell us their own stories of loved ones they've lost and rescues they'd attempted. But our escorts say we have to move on to the next destroyed place. Uh, yeah, uh, he said that they got one of their children. One of their children. So much. I'm so sorry we have to go. Shukran
here there are some excavators and they're working through the most massive pile of rubble people are standing on top of the debris watching at the next site in Jinderis, excavators are digging for a 13-year-old boy. We meet a rescuer from the Syrian civil defence, Hassan Mohammed. He says they needed specialised equipment to find and save people. We hear the uh, children screaming under the rubbles, but we couldn't help them. When we reached them, they were dead. He says if the United Nations had sent this help across the border from Turkey, hundreds of lives could have been saved. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Jinderes. While the main focus in the disaster zone in Syria and Turkey is to try and rescue people and help the survivors, increasingly some in Turkey are questioning the leadership of the country's longtime president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Given Turkey's history with earthquakes, critics are asking if his government did enough to prepare beforehand and if the response has been too slow or off the mark in the days since. Those questions are particularly important for Erdogan as he is seeking re-election and could face voters as early as May. We called Pia Zalewski, for his perspective on this, he writes for The Economist as their Turkey correspondent. He's currently in one of the hardest-hit regions in the country, and he's also been following the political situation in Turkey. Piat, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So President Erdogan is no stranger to upheavals and crises of various kinds. As briefly as you can, just tell us a little bit about how he rose to power and what are some of the other crises that he's withstood to stay in office. Uh, there was a massive earthquake in Turkey in 1999 um, that killed some 18,000 people. In a way, set the stage for Erdogan's election. Uh, Erdogan himself was elected prime minister in 2003, and he has remained in power for the past 20 years. He has also survived uh, a coup attempt, a mass corruption scandal, anti-government protests, a refugee crisis, uh, the fallout from uh, the earthquake in Turkey right now will weigh heavily on the minds of voters as, as they head to the polls. I understand that you are in areas that have been pretty hard hit, and I'm interested in, in what you've been hearing from people. What, what do they think about the government's response? I mean, objectively speaking, the response has been inadequate, and even Erdogan has admitted as much, you know, there have been areas that emergency teams and rescue workers were not able to access to, for days. Uh, one of the places I traveled to was uh, the city of Antakya in southern Turkey, and the place, you know, resembles a war zone. I mean, it resembles a city that has been um, under heavy carpet bombing for months. Every other building is destroyed, and by destroyed, I mean you know pancake leveled entirely. When I was there, there were some emergency crews, uh, or at least official rescue workers, on the outskirts of the city. In the city center, uh, there were very, very few uh, to be seen, and people were digging through the rubble with um, their own hands. There were people who were wounded who had not been looked after who had not been picked up by ambulances for hours some of the wounded died so so yes the response has been inadequate but you know you mentioned the 1999 earthquake since then as i understand it there's been an earthquake tax that was meant to gather the resources to to devote to disaster prevention and relief do we know where that money went 
on the one hand, you know, the, the government has taken some measures to earthquake-proof uh, some buildings. Um, but the biggest problem is that there are still millions and millions of homes and buildings in Turkey that have been built illegally or in defiance or disregard of building standards. And the government has just not done enough to address this. And in fact, it has made things worse by pushing ahead with several building amnesties, effectively legalizing illegal structures as a way, among other things, to win votes. Hmm. Before we let you go, you wrote a piece last month where you said, quote, another five years of Erdoganismo would push the country more overtly toward autocracy. Forgive me for asking you to speculate, but do you see any sign that people are willing to entertain uh, an alternative given, given what's just happened? An alternative to, to Erdogan, Erdogan, I mean. Yeah. Already, you know, the opposition was ahead in the polls. And again, it remains to be seen what the impact of the earthquake will be. But the question I think a lot of people are asking is, what is it that we are faced with? Is this, you know, a regime, is this already a regime masquerading as a government, meaning a, a regime that will do everything to remain in power? Or is this still a government... Uh, that can be elected out of office. And I think this is what makes the election so important in that it is going to, no matter who wins, it is going to provide at least some answers to, to that question. Piat Zalewski writes for The Economist. He's their Turkey correspondent. He's currently reporting on the aftermath of that devastating earthquake as well as the country's political situation. Uh, Piat Zalewski, thanks so much for joining us and sharing this reporting with us. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Remember, you can follow the news tonight with WBUR. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The time is 5.18. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, Rihanna turned down the Super Bowl's halftime show in 2019 because she said she couldn't support the NFL's ethics. Four years later, she's changing her tune. Find out why? Coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com slash events. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Rescue crews with thermal cameras continue to locate signs of life and pull survivors out of the rubble five days after the massive earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria. Today, workers pulled five members from one family out alive, and at least four others were rescued earlier. The death toll has now topped 28,000. In northern northwest uh, England, rather, anti-immigration protest outside a hotel that houses asylum seekers turned violent, causing injuries. A police van was also set on fire. Local police say at least 15 people were arrested and that some protesters had hammers and fireworks. And First Lady Jill Biden, raised in Philadelphia, plans to attend the Super Bowl tomorrow in Glendale, Arizona. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. We're going to turn now to some of the major diplomatic challenges the U.S. is facing right now. Russia's lethal but so far unsuccessful assault on Ukraine, which is nearing its one-year anniversary. Tensions with China over the high-altitude balloon found in U.S. airspace. And the challenges posed by the recent disaster in Turkey and Syria. One person whose responsibilities intersect with all of these issues is Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman. In essence, she is Secretary of State Antony Blinken's principal advisor, and she serves in this role after many years in high-level diplomatic positions. And I just want to mention that we spoke with Deputy Secretary Sherman yesterday before news broke that the Pentagon had shot down an unidentified object over Alaska. We started our conversation by talking about the earthquake in Turkey and Syria because I asked her what kinds of conversations she's been having with her diplomatic colleagues about this devastating event. Turkey is doing everything it can as a NATO ally to get through this and uh, has asked the world for support and help. Secretary Blinken has really made this an all-of-department mission, as has uh, the president uh, an all-of-government response. We are committed to helping our ally Turkey and the Syrian people uh, for as long as it takes, because this also is confronting uh, the people in parts of Syria. We initiated our response immediately. We are ramping up every day. We have nearly 200 personnel on the ground, along with specialized equipment and canines. Uh, the NGO partners we funded in Syria are leading the response there. We're determined to do all we can do to help. Uh, Secretary Blinken has spoken with the foreign minister twice. The president has spoken with President Erdogan. We are going to uh, really be there in every way we can because it is the right thing to do for any people around the world who face uh, such a disaster. And I thank all Americans who are also reaching out. As you just mentioned, and as many people obviously know, Turkey is a NATO ally. There's lots of government-to-government contacts uh, in part because of that. Syria is a very different case. Having been in a civil war for a decade now, Russia is clearly an ally with, you know, obviously tremendous influence and reach on the ground there. What realistically can the U.S. do to assist given those facts? Well, I'm glad you raised this because it's quite critical that there be cross-border openings so that humanitarian convoys can reach the people in Syria There's no question the U.S. government uh, does not recognize the Assad regime, but we care when any people are faced with such a disaster and such a humanitarian crisis. And so uh, we are glad that a little U.N. support is getting through the one border crossing, which is somewhat open, though the road has taken a hit in this earthquake. We would call on the Russians through the United Nations to take action necessary to open up more border crossings at this very difficult time. I think the onus is on Russia uh, to do the right thing. Now, we've seen in Russia, Ukraine, to make a pivot to another topic Mm -hmm. we want to discuss, that Russians don't think much of civilians. 
having had setbacks on the battlefield, they're now trying to freeze people to death. So I would call on Russia both to stop its targeting of civilians uh, in Ukraine in this premeditated, completely horrifying invasion of a sovereign country, and to support the opening of border crossings in Syria. These are not uh, similar situations, mm -hmm. except that people's lives are at stake and Russia should have some, some humanity. Why, why should they? I, that was my question. I think that, that it has become abundantly clear that uh, civilian casualties is not a priority of, of that regime. So why should they? Is there any lever to push? Well, I think the lever to push, which may not be pulled, given, as you say, uh, Russia has not shown any interest in civilians, is that Russia uh, has a stake in the Damascus regime. And so perhaps they will have a stake uh, in the future of Syria and will open uh, some cross-border support. Mm -hmm. But uh, you're quite right, Michelle. I'll be surprised, but I'd like to put it to them uh, through the UN and see what they're willing to do. So well, while we're on the subject of Ukraine, let's stay with that subject for a minute. And we are approaching a year since the Russian invasion. It, it does seem that now that we're in a position of divided government with Republicans controlling the House, Democrats controlling the Senate, some Republicans seem to be more restive about the level of U.S. support that um, the United States is giving to Ukraine. Has this affected the administration's thinking about how to structure this aid? I think it was notable that one of the times when both Republicans and Democrats stood at the State of the Union address on Tuesday night of this past week, when President Biden spoke so eloquently about this challenge, uh, this was a time when Democrats and Republicans both stood and applauded. Uh, because there is strong support on a bipartisan basis for our support for Ukraine. You know, this is about a simple goal, to make sure that we have a democratic, independent, sovereign, and prosperous Ukraine with a means to deter aggression and to defend itself. But my, my question spoke to whether the administration, given that there is now a partisan division in the House, well, in the Congress, as we said, does this change the administration's view of what is possible? What Are you saying that that those who are more skeptical of aid to Ukraine are such a minor part of both body or either body that it, that it doesn't change anything about the way you need to uh, defend this aid or pursue this aid going forward? I guess, I, I'm, I guess sure. the question really speaks to, does the consensus remain in American politics to support the level of aid that the United States and other allies have been giving? I absolutely believe that that consensus still remains in this country. You know, there's no doubt that it is hard a year in, but I think the American public understands the stakes here, the stakes for us, the stakes for freedom all around the world. And I don't think that's a partisan issue. I think that's an American issue. So, of course, we need to get to one of the, the big stories in, in recent days, which is this uh, alleged spy balloon that was found in U.S. airspace. You testified at the Senate this past week before some very angry members of Congress. <laughs> um, Defense Department officials insisted that there was no hostile act or hostile intent behind the balloon. You seem to disagree. Was there a hostile act? There is no question that they meant to spy on the United States to surveil our military sites. But when we realized that they were coming not only across Alaska, but into the lower 48 as well, 
we have a procedure. We made sure that all of our military sites were buttoned down. There are many things that we can do that we've learned through what's called the Open Skies Agreement process, which I won't uh, bore your listeners with, mm -hmm. uh, but we've learned how to make sure they can't collect and couldn't collect. And at the same time, we sent up planes to understand who they were and what they were doing and what we could learn about this. Now, one thing that's really important for your listeners to understand, the president early on said and gave the order to shoot down this surveillance balloon, but he wanted to do it safely. Before we let you go, you know, as I mentioned that these hearings were um, fairly contentious um, on both sides. And I was just curious how you read that, because you, the president, secretary of state, the Defense Department, these officials have all made their case that the reason that they handled this the way they handled it was both for safety of individuals on the ground, that they had made a determination that this wasn't a, a situation that, you know, that, that was addressable in the way that it was addressable and that their primary concern was both safety and efficacy, right? Sure. And I'm just curious, why do you think members of both parties don't seem to be buying that? Yes, I think it's a pretty human response, actually. Uh, if a surveillance balloon uh, came across the District of Columbia, where I'm sitting right now, I think the mayor would be a little anxious about what was happening and what it meant. So I'm not surprised by those who are from states where this balloon went over, that they were anxious and concerned. But, you know, I think the truth is, Michelle, the American people who were absolutely glued to the televisions and to the radios listening about this balloon, have an understanding about the aggressive nature of the People's Republic of China and their repression and their surveillance in perhaps ways that had not come home to roost quite yet. It may be something you've known a lot about and I've known a lot about, but I think to the average American, they got a new window into the very challenging relationship uh, that we're facing, that Secretary Blinken, uh, the president, are committed to making sure that we manage in a responsible way, and we hope the PRC will soon do the same. That was Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman. Deputy Secretary Sherman, thank you so much for being with us and sharing these insights with us today. Thank you. Switching gears now, Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and Americans will spend about $26 billion on dinner, chocolates, wine, and of course, roses. It will be hard to escape the red rose for the next few days. They will be everywhere. But these little blooms have been on a big journey, and as it turns out, the whole global economy can be wrapped up in a single rose. And PR's Stacey Vanek-Smith has the story. Chances are your Valentine's Day bouquet began life near the equator, in Ethiopia or Colombia or Ecuador, maybe even at Eden Roses. Maria Fernanda and her family have been farming flowers in the mountains of Ecuador for more than 35 years. We are in a small city that is called Cayambe, surrounded by mountains. So everything you see is mountains and nature and a lot of flowers. About 2,500 different kinds of roses, all being grown in the Andes Mountains, about 10,000 feet above sea level. The altitude apparently makes the roses very vibrant and tall and plump. Ecuador grows some of the finest roses in the world. But Fernanda says this year was rough. It's hard. Probably it was one of the hardest times 
we don't know what will happen. Eden Farms makes about a third of its money for the year on Valentine's Day. And Fernanda says this year, inflation has been devastating. Labor costs are way up, electricity costs are way up, and the war in Ukraine has hit the flour industry hard. Russia is one of the top producers of fertilizer in the world. It's harder to bring fertilizers here. We have an increase around the 50 to 100 percent of the price. And then there are the transportation costs, fuel and also airfare. Most roses will be packed into crates and loaded into giant hollowed out airplanes headed for the U.S., Australia or 6,000 miles away to one of the floral centers of the world, Holland. About a third of the world's flowers go through Holland every day. Hi, I'm Michel Vonsfi. I'm spokesman for Royal Flora Holland. Royal Flora Holland is a giant flower clearinghouse. They have a warehouse the size of 220 football fields. Workers ride bicycles across it. Now, to be modest, uh, the biggest one in the world. The biggest. <laughs> How many flowers and plants do you deal with a year? 11 billion last year. Three billion of those were roses. But Fanchi says this has been a rough Valentine's for the rose business, the biggest day of the year for the cut flower industry. Fanchi hears from rose growers all over the world, like Maria Fernanda, and they're all saying the same thing, that costs are rising for everything. And at the same time, more people are watching their spending. So the price growers are getting at auction, about 40 cents per rose on average, is not enough to keep up with costs. For that reason... Some growers have decided to stop producing, and that influences, of course, the number and also the quality of the roses. Fonchi says a lot of growers have just thrown in the towel. They are done with roses. In Africa, Europe, and South America, way fewer roses are being grown. But don't have to panic, Fonchi says. There's not a rose shortage, but... I would say... Don't wait until uh, (laughs) the afternoon of Valentine's Day because maybe then uh, you are too late. By then, he says, prices will be higher and quality could be very hard to find. The average cost of a dozen roses in the U.S. is up to about $80 this year. It's a lot more in some states, which sounds pricey. But consider that by the time you see the roses, they have been picked, packed into crates, flown across the world, unpacked, put into buckets, displayed and sold at auction, packed back into crates, flown across the world again, trucked to a shop, unpacked, dethorned, trimmed, rolled into a bouquet, loaded back into a truck and delivered to your Valentine. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Whether you've been laid off or you're just seeking a change, looking for a new job is generally not fun. It's often exhausting, a job in its own right, and it can feel like it will never end. But what can help is a job hunting plan. Life Kit host Marielle Seguera has more. All right. So let's imagine you're in that place, that I really need a new job place. Maybe you're sitting on your couch, staring blankly at a wall, or lying awake in bed, panic scrolling through job listings. Cynthia Pong has something to say to you. It can and will feel like a slog sometimes. It can feel hopeless. But the truth is that you can ask for help. You are resilient. You do have a ton of resources. Pong is the founder and CEO of the career coaching firm Embrace Change. And she's all about making a plan. 
She says, first of all, you don't want to just blast out your resume in response to every job listing you see. Because you probably are going to be spinning your wheels for the most part and wasting a lot of valuable energy and time. Instead, she recommends that you spend 70 to 80 percent of your job search networking and the rest submitting applications. It's way more powerful to apply to a job when someone has explicitly asked you to apply for it, um, or at least is like, yeah, I'll, I'll tell so-and-so to keep an eye out for your application. Also, Pong says to keep yourself on task, set some performance goals. Those are goals that are focused on what's in your control. So a performance goal could be, I'm going to reach out to 20 people this week for informational interviews. Keep in mind, you won't hear back from everybody. And that's also okay. No need to internalize or personalize that as rejection. It's literally a numbers game. But if you reach out to, you know, 20 people, you might hear back from 8 to 12. And out of those 8 to 12, you might set up two to four coffee chats. And that's all you need. You can also set goals for how many applications to submit a week or how many networking events to attend. Now, when all this goes well and you get to an interview, go in there as an equal. Don't think of yourself as desperate and maintain your composure. And in that place of composure, it's not like you're trying to have power over the other person or you're not letting them have power over you. And instead, it's about let's have a conversation. They're looking for someone to solve a problem or fill a role. Does my experience and what I bring to the table match up with the problem or the role that they're trying to fill? Then you send your thank you email a couple hours later. You know, hi, so great to meet you. I loved talking to you about XYZ. Looking forward to continuing the conversation. Bye. And you see what happens. And look, you might not get this job. And we can't tell you how long your job search is going to take. But it will end at some point. And you, this will not be the hardest thing that you've had to go through. Like, I really feel that genuinely for the vast majority of people. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. There are even more job search tips from LifeKit. They've got an episode about how to craft your personal brand. And if you feel like networking is just too awkward, there's an episode to help out with that, too. You can find those and more at npr.org slash LifeKit. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Josie Guarino, and thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. In sports, at the Garden today, the Bruins trail the Washington Capitals. Right now it's 2-1, just about a minute left in the second period. The time is just about 5.40, coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute. Rihanna turned down the Super Bowl halftime show in 2019 because she said she couldn't support the NFL's ethics. Four years later, she's changing her tune. Find out why at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, we're looking at partly cloudy skies tonight, low 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, warming up to around 53. Sending your Valentine Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity. 
visit WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, offering farm-to-table meals to go from their kitchen. See Sunday supper menus and more at VolanteFarms.com. Janine Herbst with these headlines. The city of Flint, Michigan, is under a boil water advisory today because a 24-inch transmission line failed yesterday morning. Crews are working on a fix, but city officials say that combined with testing and flushing, it'll mean that the advisory will remain in effect through at least Monday. The mayor of Canada's largest city has stepped down after he acknowledged he had an affair with a former staffer. Toronto Mayor John Tory, who recently won a third term, was known as a moderate conservative. And nationwide protests were held in France today against the government's plans to revamp the nation's pension system. One of the provisions would raise the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. After playwright Lorraine Hansberry rocketed to stardom in 1959 with A Raisin in the Sun, she followed it up five years later with the sign in Sidney Brewstein's Brustein, window. The show had a short Broadway run and has rarely been revived. The first major New York production in almost 60 years is getting a first-class treatment at BAM in Brooklyn. It stars Oscar Isaac of Star Wars fame and Rachel Brosnahan, better known as the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Jeff London has this report. Let's address the elephant in the room. Writing a Raisin in the Sun was both a blessing and a curse for its young black playwright, says Joy Gresham, director of the Lorraine Hansberry Literary Trust. You know, she was like the it girl coming out of a Raisin in the Sun. That play, which realistically depicted a black family in Chicago, took Broadway by storm, became a popular film, and has subsequently become part of high school curriculums. But when the sign in Sidney Brewstein's window, a critique of white liberal that takes place in Greenwich Village debuted in 1964, critics were not as enamored. There was a real resistance and intolerance of it, a resentment. She left her lane. And there's always this tone of, who does she think she is? Yet Hansberry was writing from personal experience. She lived among the artists, intellectuals, and social activists in Greenwich Village. Unfortunately, the play that opened on Broadway was unfinished because Hansberry was dying of cancer. And while she did rewrites from a hotel room across the street from the theater, she was too ill to attend rehearsals and previews. Just a few months after it opened, the 34-year-old playwright died and the play closed. It's wild and it's messy and imperfect, 
but incredibly powerful. Film and theater star Oscar Isaac plays Sidney Brustein, the intellectual whose life and marriage unravel over the course of the evening. He says messiness is one of the play's virtues. The wildness of it and the, at times, the incoherent way that uh, the, the motivations or seemingly lack of motivation occurs with the characters that feels so true to life. I couldn't believe it, that you should love me. I felt I was the luckiest girl in the world. What do you mean, was? Please, I'm trying to tell you something. I'm trying to listen. Try harder. Hansbury's personal life was certainly complicated. While she was married to Robert Nemiroff, a white man who was a close collaborator and became her literary executor, she had several long-term relationships with women. Director Anne Kaufman says the topics in the sign in Sidney Brustein's window feel relevant in 2023, maybe even more so than when it was written. We really don't know which way is up with race politics, with culture, with social issues, with what it is to be human these days. And who should we listen to at this moment but Lorraine Hansberry, who was prescient, and I feel like we're still catching up with her. Kaufman says the play is a call to activism and its characters are caught between cynicism and hope in a chaotic world. Oscar Isaac says he's struck by an exchange Sidney has with another character in the play. She says uh, you can't expect people to change like that. And he says the world's about to crack right down the middle. We have to change or fall into the crack. One of the things I really appreciate about Lorraine is her embrace of small change as powerful change. Rachel Brosnahan plays Iris, a would-be actress who's engaged in a struggle to find her own identity and independence from her strong-willed husband. Because unlike a lot of other plays, there's not such a clear beginning, middle, and end to their journeys. It's really jagged. If the characters are in flux, the script has been too. In creating an acting version for the Brooklyn production, literary executor Joy Gresham collaborated with director Anne Kaufman, looking at the four different published versions of the script, as well as Hansbury's notes and drafts in Harlem Schomburg Center for Research and Culture. We've kind of landed in this incredible creative method talking to one another, listening to Lorraine, listening to these different versions, and trying to imagine where she would have gone with it. So is this the final version of the sign in Sidney Brustein's window? Only time will tell. Rachel Brosnahan says there's one moment in the play she finds particularly touching, since it reflects Lorraine Hansberry's too short life. I think about it all the time. I mean, the line is, I am 29, and I want to begin to know that when I die, more than 10 or 100 people will know the difference. I want to make it. It's beautiful, and I, I can't help but think about Lorraine. It's really moving. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. And finally today, you might already be getting ready for one of the biggest events in sports taking place tomorrow. Many of us look forward to it all year. Of course, we're talking about the Super Bowl this year. Rihanna will be there, and so will some powerful messages about one of the central religious figures of all time. We're talking about Jesus. 
A rebel took to the streets. He recruited others to join him. They roamed the hood and challenged authority. Community leaders feared them. Religious leaders abhorred them. We have to get them off the streets, they said. But they weren't part of a gang spreading hate and terror. They were spreading love. That's an ad from the He Gets Us campaign. It's a riveting series of ads that place the biblical figure into current newsworthy situations, like being a refugee or isolated loner or condemned prisoner. And they all end with the line, he gets us, all of us. That one we just heard has more than 100 million views on YouTube so far. And if the sponsors have their way, those ads will get many more eyes on them. Because if reports are accurate, the organizers, who include the conservative family that founded Hobby Lobby, have spent an estimated $20 million on ads to air during the Super Bowl. Do you have a problem with that? Josiah Daniels does, sort of. He wrote a piece called What He Gets Us Ads Get Wrong About Jesus in the progressive Christian magazine Sojourners, and he's with us now to tell us more about his thoughts. Josiah Daniels, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. So just say a little bit about where you're coming from. You identify as a Christian. You say in your piece that you were actually cautiously optimistic when you first came upon these ads. Would you say a little bit more about why? Yeah, I mean, I I saw the ads actually during uh, March Madness back in in 2022, and they're really eye-catching, right? The people are in these contemporary settings, and the messages are things I think, you know, that a lot of people can relate to. Uh, Jesus was wrongly judged. Jesus suffered anxiety, too. And so there seems to be this message that initially I really resonated with. And then once I dug into the campaign a little bit more, I came away with a lot of questions. Is it that the totality of the ads contain things that you disagree with, or is it something else? Tell me a little bit more about where your sort of cautious optimism migrated to something else? What, what would you call it? Skepticism? Skepticism, I think, is a great word. Um, I think that my skepticism initially started when I saw an ad which ended with Jesus was canceled. I can, I can play that one. I do have that one. So let me just let me play that and we can talk more about what you're saying. There was an influencer who became insanely popular. Everybody started following him. Then, one day, he stood up for something he believed in. People got angry. The establishment called him an extremist, said he shouldn't be allowed to share his views. They would stop at nothing to shut him up. So they did what they had to do. They nailed him to a cross. And this is the one that ends with the quote, Jesus was canceled. And I I do want to mention that if you haven't seen this ad, that the, the sort of the person pictured in this ad, as we said, that they kind of put... These, they locate these ads in contemporary situations. The person who they've selected to uh, embody this ad is a, is a black man. So you feel what, that this misrepresents what Jesus was actually crucified for, or you think it trivializes the fact of his crucifixion? Say more about why this particular one bothers you. I, I do think it trivializes the fact of his crucifixion. You know, I think that there's a vast chasm between cancellation and crucifixion on the one side, people who are quote unquote being canceled or called out, they're having to come to terms with their lives after experiencing consequences. And on the other side, people being crucified, they're being executed because of their low standing in society. So most of the donors are anonymous, but the billionaire co-founder of Hobby Lobby, which is a company that sells arts and crafts supplies, and their particular Christian values or ethos is important to the business. 
is known to have helped fund these ads. And Hobby Lobby is known to have, for example, they were behind the, the legal fight in the Supreme Court for companies not to have to provide contraception on the basis of their religious beliefs. They are known to have supported anti-LGBTQ measures in some states. Is part of your objection to some of these messages who's behind the messages or do you care? I do care about uh, who's behind the messages. And I think the other thing that has really bothered me is Haven, which is the marketing and messaging and branding firm. They developed the He Gets Us ads, but they've also developed ads for groups who have worked to oppose LGBTQ rights, like Focus on the Family and Alliance Defending Freedom. So I know you spoke with Jason Vanderground, the spokesperson for He Gets Us. I think their point is that they are trying not to be political, that they're not left or right, that they're not affiliated with any particular church or denomination. What they say is that they want to kind of recover the authentic Jesus of radical forgiveness, compassion, and love. Do you think that they are? For me, I think that it's a little bit of a situation where where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And I think that when you look at where the money's coming from and you look at the organizations that he gets us is associated with, specifically when you look at the fact that they are associated with Haven, this, this marketing and messaging and branding firm that's worked with Alliance Defending Freedom and Focus on the Family, um, they are telling us in no uncertain terms that while on the one hand their messaging might be that Jesus accepts everybody, they are working with groups who certainly do not accept everybody. And so that makes me extremely suspicious. And I think too, it sort of is, you know, one of the things that Jason had told me was he gets us once to raise the respect and relevancy of Jesus because Christian hypocrisy has damaged Jesus. And I think that it's sort of the height of Christian hypocrisy too on the one hand say, we really want to accept everyone. But then on the other hand, you're taking money from people who have worked to curb access to abortion rights, or they've worked to curb LGBTQ rights. And I think that's wrong. And it, it really does bother me. I wonder if, and I, I know that the person you spoke to connected to the campaign did not say this, but I wonder if there, it's possible that this is a reflection of a rethinking on their part in the sense that, as you point out, and as the, the reporter, other reporters who've sort of dug into this ad have pointed out, is that, that Christianity or the way uh, certain, the expressions of it, the institutions that express it have been damaged by perceived hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, specifically um, what they should do is they should disassociate from these groups who are working to uh, curb marginalized people's uh, rights. And so if they really do um, want to sort of, you know, to use their language, rebrand Jesus or rebrand Christianity, they need to make material commitments. They need to make tangible commitments, tangible action steps. And they've not done that. And they have, in fact, told me that they don't encourage activism, whether it's through their partner ministries or, or individual Christians. And so that's really unacceptable to me. And I think it goes against the supposed message that they 
have been trying to promote on the website and through the ads. Do you think this is fundamentally a political difference, a difference of political priorities, or is this a theological difference in that you, in your Christian practice, value social justice, and perhaps they, in their Christian practice, value something else? Do you think it's that, or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I do think that, I think that the confusing thing is that when you go to the site, they're using language like activist, like inclusive, like uh, marginalized. You know, you'll go to the site and you'll see that there are these multiple posts tagged with activist justice inclusive. And so they're, they're using the language of social justice, but there's no material commitment to actually practicing social justice. So that disturbs me. But then on the question of politics and theology, I really see the two going hand in hand. Um, you know, when I uh, think about a passage like Matthew 25, where Jesus is talking about whatever you do to the least of these, you, you do to me. That is a theological statement, but it's also a political statement. And it's it's a call to Christians to live out the principles of Jesus in the here and now in this material world. And that has everything to do with both theology and politics. That's Josiah Daniels. He is the associate opinion editor at Sojourners, which you can find online at sojo.net. We're talking about a piece that he wrote called What He Gets Us Ads Get Wrong About Jesus. Josiah Daniels, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.